0: Password management is one part of a solution. When we're looking at a partner ecosystem, we can then be part of a much larger cybersecurity package that we can't offer on our
1: own. Welcome to SaaS Connect, the SaaS partnership podcast, brought to you by the Cloud Software Association. Thank you, as always, to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce a podcast and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com.
0: Thank you guys so much for joining us. So today we're really going to be focusing on the first half is talking to you a little bit about the behind the scenes journey of LastPass, a very hot startup and now a very hot part of LogMeIn. We're going to give you some of the things that worked very well and then some of the things that we really struggled with. And a little bit about where we are now and how partnerships are so critical to our strategy moving forward. And then what we're going to do is talk to Harvey. And Harvey is going to really focus on, in a large company like LogMeIn with more than 3,000 employees, how do you actually sell the concept of partnership? And why is it important to be able to successfully partner with a company like LogMeIn? So before I get started, well, I'm going to focus on LastPass, the world's best password manager. LogMeIn itself is a company of 3,000 employees, a billion dollars in revenue. We're divided into three different business units. The one where I focus my product marketing skills on is our identity and access unit. So there we're very focused around cybersecurity for the SMB. We also have two other business units that you might be interested in. One is customer engagement and support, focuses on things like web chat, being able to create a 360 degree view of your customer. And then our last biggest one, which is communications and collaboration and features our go-to line of products. But enough about everybody else. Let's talk about the LastPass journey. So I want you guys to think about this. We're coming up on our 10-year anniversary of LastPass. But let's look at 2007 versus 2017 and see the differences. So in 2007, the first iPhone was released. And now, 217 million iPhones were sold in 2017 alone. Also in 2007, according to a Microsoft study, people had about 25 passwords per person. In our most recent study across personal and business, people have 191 passwords. So you can really see how devices have changed and people's passwords have changed. Now, in 2007, what was LastPass thinking of? Growth. It was all about how can this company acquire users? And there were a few key tenants that differentiated it from the past. First was cloud only. Any kind of password manager that was around, and there were only a couple at that time, were still on your desktop. So there was a cloud-only tenant. To make things even more challenging, there was a security tenant. So our founder already knew that cloud would go nowhere without security. The other tenant was Build fast, ship fast. And when I was talking to some of the co founders and the original employees when working on this, they actually did say that oftentimes they were using their customers for betas. And I think for a startup, s- small company moving forward, that's fine. But that is one of the challenges we've had to face integrating it into LogMeIn. So let's start with the struggles. All right. So you're a small company. You have to be able to pay everybody's salary, pay the bills, but also grow your brand. So one of the first things the company did was actually look to white label. So important thing, something important to know about LastPass is we have products for the end user. We have more than 13 million people using the app themselves, but also for businesses. And so we were really focused on ensuring we could get as wide distribution as possible. And so one of the first partner strategies that was put in place was white labeling. So we OEM'd LastPass to a variety of different companies. Huge benefit, there was an ongoing revenue stream that could pay salaries. The downside is it really did absolutely nothing for the brand, and it cost a significant amount of developer resource to be able to do this. So trying to move very quickly, trying to really gain traction in the cloud, but white labeling did not prove to be an effective way for us to do this at all. One of the other challenges that we've really struggled with was the paywall and pricing in general. So with LastPass, the original paywall was you could use it on any device, but you could not use it on mobile. And then you had to pay to use it on mobile. Now, we knew that that would probably falsely increase our premium sales but it was really the closest that we could get to something that could hold up. Later on, as we decided that we were really focused on acquiring users versus revenue, once they became part of LogMeIn, we moved that paywall. It became the first solution that could run on all devices. And now there's very limited ditch difference between the premium and the free. Now, what were some secrets to success? So nerds, breaches, and friends, oh my. So remember where we are, right? Right around now in this conversation, we're around 2011 and 2014. One of the first employees who I spoke with about this called this the golden age of media for them. So a couple of things to think about. First, personal relationships were really critical. There's a gentleman named Steve Gibson, an early technical evangelist, I'm very big in sort of the techie IT crowd. He took a real likening to LastPass and started recommending it. The founders developed a relationship, and this one person started an influx of interest and it really helped us coin the term for nerds by nerds. Because for LastPass, our personal user, if you're looking in any kind of IT organization, you're going to find one or two people who are using that. So that really helped begin to gain a foothold when it comes to sort of external perception. Now, here's the golden age of media. So anybody here who's ever done a data breach oriented webinar, use case, video, I'm sure you've used the words and data breaches are daily news. And we all know that while we're all here to protect people from data breaches, there is an incredible amount of breach fatigue now. Up. Uh, My credit card was stolen again but that was not the case in 2011 and 2014 and so what would happen is there'd be breaches and the team had worked to develop very strong relationships with a couple of reporters from mashable and lifehacker so they would be called when the breaches would happen and to give comments And what would also happen is as soon as the developers would understand a breach had happened, which may even be before it was publicized because of the dark web, they would start developing a lookup tool that would allow people to understand if they had been affected. And so this incredibly fast turnaround, combined with the relationships the team developed, really made different breaches huge opportunities for revenue and user acquisition. So I think these were some of the three key things that, from early LastPass perspective, being able to move fast on news, and really taking the time to develop relationships. And here it was with a lot of external influencers. But I think that also harkens back to what we've heard in a lot of the other talks. So much of business is relationship-driven, whether it's partners or the media. So where are we now? Hanging out, looking cool, and I'm looking at our computer. How we now position things is in order to solve the password problem, the fact is us humans, we're the weakest link. And also it is hard to change habits. That's why there are 12 step programs. So it's great if we want to really focus on work, but in order to be successful, you have to change home and work. And so we focus on both of those. Now let's layer on the partner need here. We actually call this a flywheel effect. We have 13 million end users using either free or paid versions of LastPass, our personal version. Honestly, I don't care which one they use because 70%, and I think it's more, of people who buy our enterprise solution. In that buying process, either the influencer or the decision maker is the LastPass user. And so, there's a huge number of people we have using our existing consumer product, is influencing the buying cycle of our enterprise solution. And what we also then find is once the enterprise solution is rolled out, more people are using from that business the personal product. So, it's a flywheel effect. So, there are two areas we focus on in partnerships, and then I'll hand it over to Harvey. First, from the personal side, it's really about broad distribution. How can we ensure that we are getting LastPass Premium into or LastPass Families into the hands of as many end users as possible? Most recently, it's been through a partnership with Verizon. But what we need want to do is really flood the market and ensure that we remain the leader here because we do know this strongly influences are the success of our enterprise sales as well as the time for our enterprise sales, those sales cycles. And then from a partnership perspective, the bigger picture on the enterprise perspective, there are three key things that we look at. One is what can we do to increase sales footprint? And that's one of the primary reasons I'm here is to better understand how we can use resellers, distributors, MSPs, and other people to help us increase our footprint with the enterprise. Also, the solution cell. Password management is one part of a solution. When we're looking at a partner ecosystem, we can then be part of a much larger cybersecurity package that we can't offer on our own. And then third, technical integrations. So we've also recently made announcements with integrations with OneLogin and Okta to really show that we work with a variety of different solutions out there. So when it comes to our partner program and how we're moving forward, it really is in these two broad areas. I'm going to hand it over to Harvey, who's going to talk about how you can sell your partner program internally.
2: Thank you. How's everybody doing? So I've been on jury duty, actually on a jury for the last seven days and made re-entry back to earth yesterday afternoon. And so I was thinking about, what am I going to talk about? How am I going to pull this together? I'll come back to the jury duty, but just want to let you know my frame of mind. So as Rachel mentioned, LastPass has grown tremendously in the last few years. It's been great. If you do business development, it's a perfect opportunity. You're salivating to be with a company that has some traction like LastPass. And we're at this inflection point where we can take advantage of the traction that we've gotten already through these big strategic partnerships. And when I say large strategic, what I mean is think of Verizon, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, maybe even someone like Avaya, not necessarily for LastPass, but those are some of the companies that I've done partnerships with, and that's the experience that I'm bringing to this. And you've probably heard a lot about how to sell. How do I sell to the partner? And you've probably heard tons of that. So I thought, what can I talk about this a little bit different? So I thought, I'll talk about how to sell internally within the company. As you heard in my intro, so I've been with LogMeIn for about four and a half years. I was with Skype. Aerosign, PayPal, and then some other companies that, that crashed and burned. But I found in my career either this is me or the circumstance or some combination of the two, but selling internally is often way, way harder than selling to the partner. Maybe that's because you have skeletons in the closet, you're dealing with internal people. I'm going to touch on why I think that happens and how to overcome it. I am not perfect by any stretch and like I'm getting old and just barely starting to get better at it. But hopefully you'll walk away with some ideas. Your application, you might not be ready to go into a really large partner like some of the ones I've mentioned, but Maybe you'll walk away with a couple lessons and this will be interesting. So when we think about why partnering, these are pretty obvious, I think, to most of you. You know, effectively trying to change the trajectory of the company. Most often what happens is people say, how much revenue is it going to be? And I'm going to come back to that. But all of these are important in the reasons why you might partner. So how do you sell internally? Well, the first thing you just think about is why is it so difficult? So if you look here at the pinwheel on the left, you've got so many constituents that you're dealing with within a company. And the bigger the company, the harder it is to sell. The more democratic a company is, the harder it is to sell internally. I worked at companies that are very top-down. Oracle was like that. Logmein's probably on the other end of the spectrum. It's pretty democratic. It's not a bad thing. Skype was somewhere in the middle. VeriSign was very democratic but when you have those, you have to understand what's the political climate, who am I selling to, and does everyone have to be on board, or can the CEO just say, dang it, do it. So there's a lot of different roles to sell to. That's part of the challenge. The second part of the challenge is there's multiple cycles when you're talking to a partner like a Verizon, like a Facebook, like a Microsoft. And so while you may have been successful in selling to some of these roles just in the early stages of the deal, you're going to be going back to them all the way through implementation and optimization. So we just launched Verizon about three months ago. I'm still selling because you're not going to see with most big partnerships like this, you're not going to see the payoff immediately. It's just not going to happen. That's another key part of the equation. You just have to realize you're going to be selling throughout. The cycle. So back to the jury duty. So in California, I don't know what it's like in other states, and this is the first time I've been through it. They basically take about 18 people. They're trying to whittle it down to 12, and they put them in the box, the jury box. There were about 60 people when we started. I did not want to do jury duty. I'm sitting back there. They chose 18. I'm like, okay, it's looking pretty good. So they put everybody in the box, and then instead of interviewing you individually, they just start They jury number one, and they ask some questions. What's your name? What's your occupation? Have you ever witnessed a crime? Have you ever been arrested for a crime? What's your education, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a bit unnerving watching the people in the box, and I'm sure for the people in the box, it's a bit unnerving as well. So I'm sitting there, there's about 60 people total in the room, I'm thinking, "Eh, I'm looking pretty good. As they're going through and asking questions, I'll give you an example, and you can relate to this in Silicon Valley. What's your occupation, engineer. They just hammered the engineer. So as an engineer, you're pretty smart. You probably think you can find an answer to most questions, right? Yeah. What happens if you don't have all the evidence? How are you going to react to that? So they pulled engineers off pretty quickly. It was really interesting. I don't know what that says about engineers. If you're an engineer in your room, feel free to raise your hand and we'll ask you questions. No. But essentially what they're trying to do, these two attorneys, is figure out what is your bias? What biases do you have? Do I want you on the jury? So they kept pulling people off for different biases. Some, like an engineer, some people have... One was a little wacky, was basically said, I watch a lot of YouTube videos on cops and they're really bad. So they pulled that person off. So they kept pulling more people out. So there were about eight people left. And they said, okay, looks like we have our jury. Let me have counsel in chambers to go back and talk. And I didn't know. There's another card that the attorneys can play. And they come back out and they say, I'm going to eliminate these two. And they just pull them off. And they're pulling... Those attorneys are pulling them off because that person has bias. So anyway, long story short, I get pulled into the jury. I answer all the questions. They assume I'm not biased. I think I'm a pretty good juror. But I walked away from that kind of learning an important lesson about obviously how the jury process works, how the selection process works. But like immediately, as I was thinking about what am I going to talk about today, I started putting the two together. And the reality is I'm like an attorney trying to choose the right jury to sell to internally. But I don't have the ability to just take someone and say, I'm pulling that person out because I don't like their bias. I have to deal with all those biases. So I guess the message here is if you're selling internally, and I think I did a lot of this naturally, but now having gone through this, like I'm sure that I'll be more methodical. You have to think about what people's biases are going into the process of selling internally. There's role bias. So I have that first quote, protect the company. The finance team, the legal team, they're brutal in the contract phase. They're trying to protect the company. So, I've got to convince them throughout the conversation with the partner and dealing with the contract. This is why it's important how we can protect ourselves but still get the right kind of deal. Every role has a different bias, and you've got to think about what those biases are as you're working through it. And then there's individual bias. If you do business development, most of the time you're beg, borrowing, stealing, and asking someone to do something that is not their job. So, they're going to get individual bias. I have too much on my plate. I don't have any experience partnering. When I was at Skype, we were partnering with Facebook. It was our biggest competitor. Pretty much every person said, why the heck would we partner with Facebook? But there are reasons, and you have to be able to explain those reasons, and you have to understand their bias and be prepared for it. There's one other bias, by the way, which is usually if you're doing business development and you're talking to someone, they're like, what is it you do again? What is your name? Harvey, really? So this would be my pitch to you, which is also the pitch to use internally. It's how do you address these biases? The first is that you need to explain the partner journey. And what I mean by that is when I was at Skype, I worked with this guy, Scott Miller. Maybe you've heard his name, but he was great. He said over and over again, like when you talk to people internally, you have to tell them the whole story. You can't just go in and say, hey, we got to do this because of this and this and be done. You've got to take them through the journey. Why are we doing this now? What is it going to yield later? Why is it important to our company over the long haul? And you've got to be prepared to do it again and again. And I haven't done a great job of this, frankly, but I will do a better job because I'm telling you, you should. The second is be prepared for the role in individual bias. I've talked about that. Paint a realistic picture. You know, most of these partnerships do not succeed. That is the reality. So you have to be clear. Here's what would happen if it goes well. Here's what happens if it doesn't go well. Understand the risks. Just be realistic. Be human with people. I guarantee it will backfire if you just oversell. Just be realistic. And lastly, elaborate on, I just said, the relevant levers. As I mentioned earlier, there are many reasons why you do a partnership or put a partnership in place. What happens the most often, I find, and this is true at the last four or five companies, is the first thing that someone says when I'm talking about partnership is, how much revenue is it? And what I've gotten better at doing is saying, I will answer that question, but you're going to have to sit and listen to me explain these other categories, and why they're important as well. Back to the jury analogy, and when we went through the process of listening to the case, and the prosecutor is telling us how to think about all the evidence, she says, you need to think about the totality of the evidence in your considerations. And the same is true here. When you're explaining to someone why you should do a partnership, you need to tell them, you need to think about the totality of the reasons why we do a partnership. And you shouldn't latch on to just one thing. Yes, it's easy to just say it's revenue put a revenue number in place and try and hit it. But there's all these other reasons that you may be doing a partnership. I've done partnerships that fit all of those. Verizon does, for example. I've done partnerships that fit just one of those. And it was still a good reason to do it. And it still paid off for that reason. So again, when someone asks you, why are we doing this? You have to be patient sit them down, ask them to be patient, and explain the entirety of the opportunity for them and each of the components. It's important that they understand the totality of the opportunity. It'll help you as well down the road when you go through the different phases of that partnership. So I haven't given you much about LastPass, but this is all very fresh because I've just been through it with Verizon. The thing I would say about Verizon, again, I think most people, including me, assume if you're working with a telco, it must be incredibly painful. And actually, it's been quite a delight. And I'm not just... Pulling one over on you. But internally, it has been challenging. And I think if I had jury duty before, it really would have helped me, but I didn't have the luxury of that. But I did have some experience. But I think it's been key just to open up, explain all the components, and also to get feedback from all those roles. You're going to be much better in the deal making process if you get feedback from others and they're participating in the process. So don't just tell it and hand it to them and say, this is what we must do. Let them participate in the process. I feel like I'm preaching. Hopefully, it didn't sound preachy, but appreciate your time. And if you have any questions
1: for Rachel or I? It's very common. Like, I love this. they circle in a million roles. So the partnership manager has to talk to a million different roles in the company, which means you have to be an expert in a million different roles in the company. Now, no one starts knowing everything about every function in the company. We're experienced people. For someone who's starting off from partnerships, how do you think they should learn about how legal works, product works, marketing, sales? They got to learn them all. What do you think they should do?
2: That's a great question. I don't know if I have the secret sauce like for me personally. I had a lot of different roles before I got to the point where I was doing business development. So when I was at Oracle, I was doing sales support and I was working on contracts day to day with alongside a global account manager. The main thing, especially when you're younger than me and you have lots of energy, is just be unbelievably curious about every step in the process. If the attorney is helping you, ask them, why did you say that? Why do you want the contract to go this way? If you're talking to the finance team and you're talking like a, about revenue recognition, like dive in, you're right. There's so, so much to learn. I was a product manager for a while. That's a great track to go into business development. I wasn't very good at product management, but it helped me be better at business development because you understand all the different roles across the company and all the
1: different functions. Thank you very Thanks. much, Harvey. <laughs> Rachel. If you like this and want more great insights on software partnerships, you've got to rate, like, and subscribe. And join us at thecloudsoftwareassociation.com. Thank you, as always, to our podcast producers, Content Allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue-generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce a podcast, and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. We'll see you on the next episode.